The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Take your Bibles, as you've already done, to Acts chapter 2. And I want you to imagine this morning that we are on an aircraft and that we are flying as a whole church together up to Sydney for a meeting. And like most aircraft do, as they approach the city where they're going to land, the air traffic control will often put them into a holding pattern. And that holding pattern lets the aircraft circle around the airport for anywhere from 20 minutes to half an hour, maybe 40 minutes, before the air traffic control finally says you're cleared to land. So what in the world am I talking about? Sometimes when you come to a passage like this, like Pentecost, it's necessary for us not to dive right into the text, but to stay above and circle around and get a lay of the land to see how the rest of Scripture relates and affects this great event called Pentecost. And so what I want to do this morning is I want us to do a survey of some great promises that lead up to and are explained and are defined by Pentecost to help us to see how promises that God made are kept. Some of you may have noticed if you're a new believer or maybe when you were a new believer and you read through your Bible, you noticed a striking difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's a lot of difference. The way that God relates to his people is significantly different today than it was in the Old Testament times. So I want you to imagine again, if you like, that now you're a Jewish person. You're living in Jerusalem. It's the first century. It's the morning of the Pentecost feast. And outside you hear a great commotion. Men and women coming from an upper room down into the streets of Jerusalem. There is an indescribable joy on their faces. They're all speaking in different languages and yet They're all declaring together the wonders and the glories of God. One of them, Peter, a big burly fisherman, stands up and he preaches a great message. He tells of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. He tells of the Holy Spirit being poured out. He calls men and women to repent and be baptized. He promises that all who do so will likewise receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's wonderful. It's an amazing thing. But in the back of your mind, you begin to wonder, what about the old ways? What about the temple, the sacrifices, the priests, the Pharisees? This new sect called the way begins to gather momentum and more and stranger things happen. And still you wonder, Why do these followers of Jesus no longer need to be born into Jewish homes and from Jewish parents? 
Gentiles are now included in their number and among their worship. Why do the Christian men no longer need to be circumcised? Why do these followers of Jesus seem to ignore the dietary and clothing and cleanliness laws of the Old Testament? Why do they not go up to the temple anymore to offer sacrifices? What happened to Israel as the people of God? What about the laws, the sacrifices, the temple? What happened that these things are no longer considered necessary and important? Did God just change his mind and throw them all away? The one thing that we will never understand living in our Western 21st century culture with 2,000 years of Christian history behind us is that to the first century Jew, the teaching of the church, the practices of the early church were cataclysmically wrong. To them it was heresy. I was trying to think of a way to... uh, to analogize it for us, it would be similar to someone walking in the back door of this church and saying, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. It's not Jesus of Nazareth. It's a guy named Doug King, a carpenter from Moe. He's the Messiah. You've got it all wrong. In fact, the way you do your whole worship is completely wrong. It's mostly unnecessary. And we would all rise up with righteous indignation and see that seize that fellow by his shirt scruff and escort him to the door, open it and throw him out. We would say, you're a heretic, you've got it wrong. But in reality, the first century Christians going into the Jewish culture of their day and preaching Christ as Messiah was as cataclysmic. I can see the frowns and looks on your faces all over the room. That's how they would have responded. And the question that comes up, as we understand and try and understand what's happening in the New Testament, is what happened to the Old Testament? What happened to all those laws and commands? What changed? Did God just simply change his mind and throw all those things away? And the answer is no, of course not. We believe, and the Scriptures clearly teach, that God is unchanging. He changes not. But Pentecost morning marked a profound change in the way in which God deals with humanity. Man is still, Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 21, man is still saved and justified by faith in God. That hasn't changed. The Ten Commandments still stand. We are not free to go and have other gods besides God. But the circumcision, the temple, the altar, the separation, the sacrifices in blood and fire and smoke, the Jewish birth, the food laws, the cleanliness requirements, all those other elements of Israel's old covenant have become obsolete. That is right out of Scripture. You doubt that? Look up Hebrews 8 and verse 13. It explains exactly. Pentecost is, in fact, the next major step, the logical progression of God's great plan and purpose to gather all the nations together under one head, who is Jesus Christ. So what happened? Well, the reality is that God made promises. 
He made some promises in the Old Testament. And the second reality is this, that God kept the promises that he made. And Pentecost, thirdly, is the proof of those promises kept. Now, we will touch on Acts 2 this morning, but I want to do that circle around. I want us to see from the Old Testament how this all lands together. One thing we have to keep in the back of our minds as we go through both Luke on Wednesday nights and Acts on Sunday mornings is Luke is writing with a specific purpose. And one of those purposes with which Luke writes is to explain and help the first century Gentile Christians understand how it is that the Jews have rejected Jesus and the Gentiles are now included in God's people. And this is part of that story. So first of all, first major point is this. There's a green note sheet in your bulletin. You can follow along if you want to. On Pentecost morning and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, it marks both the keeping of God's promises and the great change that occurred. If you notice, right in our text, verse 1, it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Now Luke, very poignantly and very carefully, anchors everything that's going to happen with that specific context. And understand, we go to look through the history of the Old Testament. We're going to see that God made three specific promises. They are number one. God promised a sacrificial lamb to die for the people's sin, his people's sin. Secondly, God promised in the Old Testament that a new covenant, a new arrangement would come. And thirdly, we can see that God promised that his Holy Spirit would be poured out on all flesh. God has and God always is working towards his one specific goal, which is to bring all creation, all the nations under one head, our Lord Jesus Christ. So first of all, first promise, he promised a sacrificial lamb to die for his people's sin. Now for a lot of us, this is not going to be new. This is going to be review. It's a reminder to what's going on in Scripture. Passover is extremely significant in Israel's history. Passover was rescuing, God rescuing his people from the last great plague in Egypt, the plague of death. If you want to go back in your Bibles and look at Exodus 12, verses 1 to 13, and then 12, verses 21 to 32, you can see the stories all spelled out there. But God was dealing with Pharaoh to free Israel from slavery. The last final plague was a universal plague. Some of those plagues have been on Egypt only, some on Israel and Egypt, but this one was a universal one. That plague would fall over all the peoples, all the homes in that land. Every family chose a lamb, they examined it to make sure it was blemish-free and flawless, and at twilight on Passover night, they killed that lamb, and then in an act of faith, they would dip some hyssop, which is like a brush-like plant, in that blood. And they would paint the blood on the doorpost and on the lintel. And once that blood was painted in there, they would take that lamb and roast it over fire. And they would take it inside and they would shut the door and they would stay inside. And what would happen is they would roast and eat that meat and they would stay in there. The family were under the protection of the blood of the lamb. The reason why they paint across the lintel, which is the top piece on the door there, it shows that the blood was over them. And the angel of death would come through around midnight. He would see the blood 
and he would pass over those people. And the, and the people of God were saved by the blood of the Lamb. The people of God departed that very night before morning came. They were coming out of their homes, gathering their possessions. They ate the Passover feast, the Bible says, with their traveling clothes on, their staff in their hand, their shoes on their feet. Everything was ready to go. The ladies took the bread dough that hadn't risen yet, wrapped it up in cloths, put it on their heads, and they all marched out of the land. The very same night that the Passover lamb was killed, God delivered them. But that Passover feast also served to point forward all the way through history to Jesus Christ. You want to know how history works? It's all focused in on Christ. He is the center point of everything that God is doing. He is the center point of history. The Passover is God's promise of Christ, the Lamb of God. And having rescued Israel out of Egypt and slavery, God leads his people through the Red Sea to the foot of Mount Sinai. And Exodus, sorry, not Acts, Exodus 19 to 24 describes God forming the nation of Israel and establishing a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. The core of that covenant is God's holy, just, and perfect law. There's nothing wrong with the law. God's law revealed the absolute holiness of God. It portrayed in both picture and written form the holy standards that all men must have in order to enter into God's presence. The old covenant promised that Israel would be a kingdom of priests to God. That law required Israel's perfect obedience. But, and we all know the problem, man is unable to keep the law due to his sinful nature. But God's law also provided for an atoning blood sacrifice. In other words, a sacrifice that could both cleanse us from sin and placate or do away with God's wrath. Now those animal sacrifices could never truly atone for sin because an animal cannot represent accurately you and I. But those animal sacrifices served to remind God of a coming great and perfect sacrifice. It repeated the promise of the Passover lamb that a perfect substitutionary sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the lamb of God, was coming. Now you read the history of Old Testament Israel from Exodus 24. You start reading through and all you see, I think it's only within 30 days of them agreeing, everything that you have said, O oh God, we will do. Moses went up the mountain. Where's Moses gone? We don't know. Hey, let's make a God to worship. And they got together, took all their gold, made a thing, formed a golden calf, and they were bowing down and worshiping to it. Not even 40 days had gone by, and they had broken God's law and disobeyed God's law. And all the Old Testament history is a constant repeating cycle of disobedience, breaking the covenant, God coming in with judgment and trying to bring the people back to following him and serving him, bringing them back to faithfulness. So God, first of all, promised a sacrificial lamb. Secondly, God promised a new covenant. 
We said a minute ago that the old covenant was perfect and just and holy, but it was impossible to keep because man's sinful nature would not allow it. He could not do it. Remember, nothing wrong with the old covenant. They just couldn't keep it. And the old covenant was an external covenant. It was written, the Bible says, on stone tablets. And the old covenant, the law of God, the reality is it could not provide true forgiveness of sin. The Bible says in Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 3, it's on your note sheet. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of those realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect, or forgive in that case, those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is reminder of sins every year. Secondly, it's the first thing that the Old Covenant could not provide a real forgiveness of sins. The Old Covenant could not cleanse the conscience. The Bible says in Hebrews 9, verse 9, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So the reality is, even though they're offering all those sacrifices and all those millions of gallons of blood were poured out and all those offerings offered up in smoke and fire, they couldn't deal with one sin. The old covenant could not cleanse the conscience or deal with bring forgiveness when the old covenant could not bring man to know God truly, intimately, and personally. I've mentioned before here, I'll mention again, that the tabernacle was in the center of that great camp of Israel, but there was a huge space. They could only go so close. They could only look from a distance and see what was going on. There was no real intimate knowledge of God by the people of Israel. They knew about him. They knew something of him, but to actually know him was not theirs to enjoy. And Israel, as we said before, repeatedly broke God's covenant. So God promised a new covenant. The new covenant is also described in Scripture as a covenant of peace and an everlasting covenant. Now, take your Bibles, stick your finger in Acts, and flip back to the Old Testament, to the book of Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. And we'll look at verse chapter 31. It's a well-known portion to, to many of us. But Jeremiah 31 and verses 31 to 34. Jeremiah 31, beginning at verse 31, the Bible says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, 
from the least of them to the very greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. A new covenant, that's what God's promising. And that new covenant would be different in a couple of ways. It would first of all be an internal covenant, while the old covenant was an external one written on stone tablets and stored inside the Ark of the Covenant, this new cabinet, covenant sorry, would be written on the hearts of its participants. God would write His law right on the, our hearts. Secondly, it will be a covenant where we'll each will know the Lord. Not merely a corporate national sense, but each man individually and intimately would know God. Now, I'll just pause for a second here. I'm going to jump ahead to the end of my message. But of all the blessings that God has given us, this one to me ranks the highest. Yes, forgiveness of sin is absolutely important. We know that. We can't have this without forgiveness of sin. But the reality is that God, in His grace and His mercy, has opened the way for each of us to have an intimate relationship, an intimate knowledge of the living God, to walk with God side by side as a man walks with his friend, to be fastened together, as Jesus said, under the yoke and fastened with Christ to learn of Christ day by day. God says, I'll make a new covenant and each one will know me. They would provide true forgiveness of sins. God says, I will remember their sins no more. Yeah, that's a great promise, isn't it? You wrestle with the guilt of sin. I know I did for years. So I got a hold of that truth that God does not remember. Why? Because God's got a short memory? Absolutely not. God chooses to put those things completely out of His mind. And God promises the people, I will bring you a new covenant. And that covenant will have forgiveness of sins and true knowledge of God. God promised a new covenant of peace and everlasting covenant. Thirdly, God promised to pour out His Holy Spirit on all flesh. And we're getting closer to Pentecost. Those of you probably know this, most of you probably know this, but Pentecost is a Greek name for the Jewish Old Testament Feast of Weeks. And what that was is uh, Pentecost, as you can see the word pente in there means 50. And what it was is from Passover, the day after Passover, they counted seven weeks of seven days. So 49 plus 1 is 50, so from Passover to Pentecost is 50 days. And what Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, was all about was a celebration of the completion of harvest. So the people of Israel go out and they gather up all their crops, barley, corn, wheat, grapes, olives, all those things, pomegranates and apples, and they would bring them into their storehouses, into their barns, and they would celebrate the Feast of Weeks, the thanksgiving had been done. God had abundantly provided for all their needs. But remember, Israel continually disobeyed and broke God's covenant. God repeatedly brought discipline and judgment against His people. He sent one prophet after another to speak the Word of God, to try and bring the hearts of the people back to faithfulness to God. The book of Joel describes a great event that points towards our Pentecost day in Acts. So take your Bibles, flip a little more towards the New Testament. 
You got Daniel, Hosea, then Joel. If you hit Amos, you've gone too far and back up a couple of pages. In the book of Joel, I'm not going to read a lot from this, but just to sketch our way through it. In Joel, the first six chapters, Joel describes God's judgment. It's a plague of locusts that come in and it destroys all the crops. If you read the next couple of verses, seven down a bit further, you'll see there how there's absolute devastation. Everything has been eaten and chewed and taken away. On top of this great plague of locusts and all these crops being destroyed, God brings a drought. Now there's no water to drink. There's no water and there's no food. And the people of God are hungering and thirsting. Joel, in chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, he calls out to God, or he calls God's people, sorry, to return to the Lord. He pleads with them, people of God, come back to the Lord in repentance and mourning and grieving over your sin. And then in verse 18 of chapter 2 to verse 27, Joel describes God's promised, promised blessing for repentance. In fact, if you look at 2 and verse 24, find that in your Bible, you notice a very interesting phrase here. He says, the threshing floors shall be full of grain and the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. In other words, what happens is he promises that God is going to bring a great harvest. And in this day to come, the threshing floor, the place where they thresh out the wheat and gather up all the grain and all the chaff is blown away, that threshing floor will be piled high with grain. This is the time of Pentecost. It's the time of thanksgiving for God's abundant supply. He describes a promised thanksgiving feast. It's the end of the harvest. It's the feast of Pentecost. It's a promise of thanksgiving and praise to God for great abundance that God will supply. Joel also promises in the next verses that God's people will return to him never again to be brought into the shame of judgment. He promises that they would know that God is in the midst of his people. What does Emmanuel mean again? God in the midst, right? God with us. In a sense, that's what he's describing. A day to come when God would be right in the midst of their people. They would know the Lord their God is the one true God. They would never again go off to worship idols and baals of the nations around them. And then we hit Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. And we'll read those, then we'll read verse 32. You should, they should sound familiar to you if you've been reading Acts these are the verses that Peter is going to use as he preaches his great sermon on Pentecost Sunday. It says in Joel 2, verses 28 and 29, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. And then verse 32, it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. What will Peter stand up and say on Pentecost morning? The Spirit of God has been poured out. This is that which Joel said way back in Joel. At the end of his sermon, you know what he's going to say in Acts chapter 2? Put back there. He says, 
Now I've lost it. Don't you hate it when that happens? No, it's not 16. It's much later in the passage. That's 16 and 17 is the, is the verses he's quoting there. But he, oh, there it is. Yeah, there it is. Verse 21, it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's, he's quoting Joel. He's using the verses from Joel's prophecy right in Pentecost to explain Pentecost. Joel's prophecy is God's promised repentance, revival, and Holy Spirit come at Pentecost. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit was a mark of the new covenant, and it would mark the beginning of the greatest revival ever in history. And that revival is still going on today. And even though it's ebbed and flowed a little bit since then and has died off at points and come back in great fire and zeal at other points, that revival's still going on. God is still gathering up people for his kingdom. God did not only make promises, those promises, but God is also faithful to keep his promises. And you can guess most of them. First of all, God kept his promise. Christ came as the sacrificial lamb of God. Here the Passover and the Old Covenant promise is fulfilled together. Christ came and lived a perfect, sinless life according to all the law's requirements. Christ fulfilled the law's requirements for our perfect obedience in our place. He did it for us. Christ has also died in our place to pay the full penalty for our sin. Christ is the atoning sacrifice promised by God. His life and his death fulfilled all the old covenant's requirements and his life and death rendered the old covenant obsolete. Hebrews 8.13, I mentioned before, the Bible says this, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Christ is simultaneously the promised Lamb of God dying to save His people. His death saved us from God's wrath. His death saved us from sin's power. Christ's death set us free from slavery to sin. And through Christ's death, God has forgiven our sin. He remembers it no more. Through Christ's death, God has reconciled us to Himself. And we have peace and fellowship with God. Secondly, Christ kept his, or God kept his promise. The Lord Jesus Christ instituted a new covenant. Christ's life and death made the old covenant obsolete. Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and wine like we did this morning. And he instituted a new covenant in his blood. And we are included in that new covenant. We remember the Lord Jesus Christ in taking the bread and drinking the little cup of juice. And we celebrate the new covenant that we've been brought into as we remember the Lord Jesus Christ in the Lord's Supper. Now here's where some of the major changes begin to show up. Remember I mentioned earlier what's happened, all those changes? Because the old covenant has been made obsolete, it's no longer necessary to sacrifice animals for sin. Why? Because God just changed his mind? No, because all those requirements in Christ, they're all completed. They're done. They're no longer needed. It's obsolete. Christ's sacrifice was sufficient once for all. It's no longer necessary. 
to physically circumcise the men because it's obsolete. True circumcision, Paul says in Romans, is circumcision of the heart. It's cutting off the sinful flesh. It's cutting off the sinful habits and activities and the nature and putting it away. It's no longer necessary to observe the dietary laws. It's obsolete. How do we know that? Because in Acts 10, Peter has a vision. In that vision, God revokes those old laws and says, don't call unclean what I have made clean. The separation idea that those dietary laws reinforced is removed. The wall of division is torn down. Jew and Gentile, brothers and sisters, you and I, as Gentile people, are now included. It's no longer necessary to be physically born a Jew, to be a part of the people of God. Those who have faith, like Abraham, are called the true sons of Abraham. Paul says in Galatians 3, Christ's death established a new covenant in his blood. The new covenant promises are being fulfilled in Christ. The new covenant is marked by the presence and filling of the Holy Spirit on all those who believe. Thirdly, last one, last promise, God's faithful. Christ poured out the Holy Spirit on all flesh, and we're hitting right into Pentecost now. God promised the Holy Spirit in context of that Pentecost feast. Christ promised the disciples in the time between his resurrection and his ascension, I will give you the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And Christ, having ascended on high and being seated at his Father's right hand, he now has taken the Holy Spirit and, I mean no disrespect, he has literally poured him out on all flesh. The Spirit of God filling the disciples and believers marked them off as separated to Christ as part of that new covenant. And thirdly, last major point is this. Pentecost displays the reality of God's promises kept. Pentecost is important. It's, it's very important in biblical history. It marks the proof of all those promises being kept. Christ is seated in glory. He's poured out the Spirit. The new covenant is fully established. It marked the beginning of the greatest true revival in all of Israel's history and all the history of the church ever since. That revival is still going on. Yes, in many ways it's lessened and the ebb is flowing slower. Yes, there are less people being saved in the day we live in. But praise God, we hope there'll be more saved in days to come. The reason why we go out and, and with evangelism tracks and engage our friends and neighbors in conversations about the Lord is so that we can share the good news that there is forgiveness of sin. There's a new covenant established in Christ's blood. Pentecost marks that God has kept his promises, including the Holy Spirit. The new covenant is marked by the presence of and filling of the Holy Spirit, and it guarantees some absolutely essential truths. The presence of the Holy Spirit guarantees that in Christ we have forgiveness of sin. How do you know that there is true forgiveness? 
presence of the Spirit of God in your life, testifying to your heart and your soul that there is real forgiveness, that God has accepted you in Christ. He remembers our sin no more. We need never bring another animal to offer. Christ's sacrifice for you and for me is accepted. The new covenant marked by the presence and filling of the Holy Spirit guarantees that in Christ we have the promise of peace with God. You say, well, didn't Israel have that? Well, let's think about that. If somebody, one of the Jews, let's just say somebody from the tribe of Simeon, for example, walked up to the tabernacle, walked around the great bronze altar with its raging fire, and blood all over the place, stepped carefully over the pools of blood, walked past the great big bronze laver full of water where the washing was to happen, walked past that, walked up to the entrance of the tabernacle tent, pushed aside the curtains. The five pillars holding those curtains, I've walked in, walked around the altar of incense with its glowing coals and the smoke that rose up from there and grabbed the curtain and pulled it aside to step behind what would happen? Death. Immediately. Trust me, peace isn't really what you would describe it. In fact, after the people of Israel took that golden calf and went out in the desert and they're bowing down and worshiping into it, and God says, let me alone in my wrath and I will destroy them and I'll make a new nation out of you, Moses. And Moses says, no, Lord, don't do it. If you're going to do anything, blot me only out of your book. And God says, okay, I'll go with you. And Moses takes a tent and goes way out away from the camp, and he establishes a way outside the tent, the camp of Israel. And there in the tent of meeting, God goes out and he meets with God face to face, and there's a great distance established. And they go through all that work of building the whole tabernacle. And the whole tabernacle, it sounds so beautiful when we look at it. You look at the pictures in the back of your Bible. It's all sparkly and glittery. The reality is it would have been covered in blood. And hanging over that whole tent, that whole scene, the big courtyard would have been the smell of burning meat, the smell of fire. You dare step behind that veil. There's no peace, really. This blood has to be constantly offered. But the beautiful thing is that Christ, our forerunner, has gone behind the veil with his own blood, and we now have peace with God. Peace unlike anything they would have known. Brothers and sisters, Christ has forged peace in His own blood. He's made a new covenant in His own blood. He has brought us into that covenant. We have peace with God. We have forgiveness of sins. Not only that, God's law is written on our hearts. Now the best I try to understand this, I think what He means, you may have a better idea, but I think what He means is the Spirit of God applies the Word of God to the very heart of every single believer. You sit in your room with the Bible open, you begin to read, and you hear, not physically hear, but there's a great sense that God is speaking through His Word. And the Word of God bears deeply on our hearts. It convicts us of sin. It gives us a great joy as we read what God has done for us. 
The Spirit of God applies that word. The Spirit of God teaches us. He's a gentle and a patient and a wise teacher. He gives us just what we can handle, not too much, not too little. He waits until we obey, and He gives us a little more. And He teaches us His word. And that great new covenant promise is that God's law will be written on our hearts. But in Christ, we have something even more than that. You see, I, can, I have books. You look in my office, there's more books than you know what to do with. I love reading biographies. You look, you see in the Spurgeon pile, there's a whole stack of biographies on Spurgeon. I've read most of them. If I walk up to Spurgeon heaven and say, hey, Charlie, he'll look at me and go, who are you? I don't know Charles Spurgeon. I know him. I mean, I know lots about him. But he doesn't know me. There's no relationship there. And like other faiths and other religions, they have a book, some of them, and they can know lots about the one that they are worshiping. But brothers and sisters in Christ, listen. We have the inestimable privilege, the fact that we can know God. We can know Him personally. We can know Him deeply. We can know Him intimately. There is joy in forgiveness of sins. There's a joy in knowing that we have an inheritance, that the Spirit of God we've been given is just a down payment, just a deposit on an inheritance that's yet to, to come. But there's joy, an immense joy that goes beyond all of those things, that we can know God. Remember the story of Paul? He says, I give up everything. Everything that I have that makes me something, my position, my place, my possessions, I'm willing to go into a jail cell and be chained between two, two Roman soldiers, not two thieves, two Roman soldiers. I'm willing to go and put my head in the block and have it chopped off with a Roman sword. I'm willing to endure scourgings and beatings and shipwrecks and all these things. You know why? That I may know him. That I might truly know the Lord Jesus Christ, my Savior. There is joy in knowing Christ, in communing with God in prayer. Brothers and sisters, this week we're going to have a prayer week. We're encouraging you as much as possible if you can come down to the church here and meet with us and pray with us. There's two, three, five, ten of us, doesn't matter. And spend time together in prayer. But one of the greatest blessings that we have as a people of God is to sit around and gather around the Lord Jesus Christ and we can commune with Him, we can speak to Him in prayer, and we can sit silent in His presence and wait until His voice begins to speak deep into our own hearts. We speak with God, we listen to God through His words. Brothers and sisters, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 was proof that the new covenant had been established. But you know, it's more than just for a few of them. That new covenant and the Pentecost day was all in the idea. It was set into the context, like Luke says, when the day of Pentecost came. It's set in the context of a great harvest, a great gathering up of grain, a great gathering up not of barley and wheat and corn, but a gathering up of souls for the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit was not only poured out on 120 persons, men and women in an upper room, all those who believed in Christ Jesus and repent of sin will also receive that gift. That day, 3,000 came to know Christ. 3,000 more were filled with the Holy Spirit. 3,000 more 
were declaring the wonders and glories of God in their own language. The Holy Spirit, the gift of the Spirit of God is applied and given to all those who trust and obey. And in a sense, the Holy Spirit is applying the work of salvation that Christ purchased in His blood. The Spirit of God, to use a metaphor, is like a great reaping scythe. And Christ is walking through His grain field and He is swinging that scythe around and He's harvesting in all kinds of grain and He's gathering up the grain. John the Baptist talked in his Matthew chapter 3 about how the Lord Jesus Christ would gather His grain into His barns. And Pentecost began a great harvest. The work of Christ was being applied to Jew and Gentile, and it spread right across Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And here we are in Australia in 2019, and Christ is still harvesting. He's still gathering up souls for His kingdom barn. So what do we do with all this? Finish the message and you say, well, so what? I'm dealing with one problem after another in my life. I've got medical issues. I've got health issues. I've got financial issues. I've got relationship issues. My issues have issues. I've got so many issues. What about that? How, how does this? Thanks very much for a great message on the Bible. So what? How does it help us get through the week? Because this isn't just a theology class. It's a church of the living God. We come not only to know about God, but to know how we can respond to God. And I'm going to give you probably the most obvious answer that's right there in front of you. God makes promises. God keeps promises. You can trust God. If nothing else, Pentecost morning was a great shout to all of the Old Testament, to all of Israel, that God kept His promises. It's here for everybody to see. The great tragedy is the Jews were blinded by their own self-righteousness. and They failed to see what was really in front of them. But God says, you can trust Me. Trust the Lord. Throw yourself fully on Christ. He promised that you would have forgiveness of sin. What's required? Faith and repentance. And repentance, an actual fact, incorporates faith. It's a total and radical change of view, a total radical change of mindset and attitudes and actions towards God. Instead of living for myself, I live for God. And I trust God that He will keep that promise. You say, how how do you know for sure He's going to keep the promise? Look back. Look up to a place called Calvary. We've gone to a lonely hillside, and there the Lord Jesus Christ is on a cross for a time, and then He's taken off. And that cross shouts for all of mankind, all of humanity to hear, God keeps His promises. Christ purchased your forgiveness with His blood. For God to refuse to forgive your sin would be for God the Father to spit on His Son's sacrifice. You want to know forgiveness? Real, genuine forgiveness. A conscience washed, squeaky clean. It's only found in Christ. 
You can trust Christ that you will have peace with God. You can trust Christ that He will write the law on your heart as you spend time in God's presence, as you open the Scriptures and soak them up and read them and memorize and meditate. God will speak. Not in an audible voice. You won't hear somebody talking in your ear. But deep within your heart, where nobody but you and God can hear, He will speak. And He will impress His mind upon your heart. Listen, whatever circumstances you're going through, He said, you don't understand how much pain I'm enduring. No, I don't. But God does. And I'm absolutely convinced that the same God who puts you through everything He's put you so far and brought you through it is going to bring you through this. Even if the far side of whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're struggling with, whatever health or financial issue it is, even if the far side is eternity, God will bring you through. Trust God. I remember struggling with a huge problem. It was huge to me. Okay. And just, I don't know what to do. And finally, I just said, and it's, the, it's the dumbest thing. You all would have said, Nelson, we could have told you that weeks ago. Finally, I said, you know what? I can't deal with this. It's yours. Just, you deal with it, Lord. And it was almost as if like heaven said, that's what I was waiting for. To you to say, I can't. You deal with it. Does that mean that God's going to drop an email in your email box and says, here's the solution to your problem. Step one, step two, step three, do this, do that, and everything will be solved. No, it doesn't mean that. What it means is you will know the peace of God. You will know God's comfort. You will know, if I can put it this way, the arm of the Lord Jesus Christ wrapping around your shoulders and saying, together we will make it through this. Together, we will walk the rest of this journey, whether it's a financial crisis or a health crisis, whatever it may be, together, we will take one step after another and we will get through this. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. Listen, God keeps his promises. Pentecost was a great shout to all of humanity that God keeps his promises. You can trust him. Brother and sister, I don't know what you're going through. I can see on a few of your faces that there is some real grief and heartache. Trust the Lord. Lean on Him. He who purchased your salvation, He who purchased your eternal future, He who purchased your forgiveness, He who purchased the redemption that you need, he who rescued you out of sin and slavery and out from under his wrath, he will see you through. But you know, it's more than just getting through the troubles. I know our time is gone, but I just want you to notice. We'll pick up this next week, but just notice. When the Spirit of God came in Acts 2, verses 2 and 3, it's no weird thing that there was a mighty rush, a sound like, like a mighty rushing wind. And there was an appearance of fire. Does that mean there was actual fire resting on them? No, it's just an analogy. And what those two things do is so cool. 
It shows the power of God at work in our lives when the Spirit of God comes. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Spirit of God has come upon you. Peter and I love have one one love outside of church in common. We both love sailboats. Uh, he's built a number of sailboats. My one of my goals in life is to build a little sailboat, a woodworker. And there's something so cool, and you're in the beach, and you're watching. There's a sailboat going in front and in past in front of you, and the wind is taking that great big sail and filled it up. And the sailboat is racing across the waves, and it's silent and it's beautiful, and the waves and the spit is flying. The the water is flying back of the spray. And the power of that wind drives that little boat along. And the the pilot inside, by using the wheel and changing the set of the sails, he can take that boat wherever he wants to go. There's power behind it. What's the point? The point is that when the Spirit of God came in power on those believers, there was a power given to them to live that life. How is it that Peter, who was afraid of a servant girl, and when she said, you're one of them, he went, oh, no, 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 not me. Come on, don't be silly. A few weeks later, stands up in front of a great big crowd and says, Jesus Christ is Lord. Crowd has made him both Lord and Christ. How could he stand in front of all of the council, all of those great men in all their big robes and all their gold-colored outfits? and say, it is better for us to obey God than you. How is it that he could be made to lie down and take rods and they beat him on the back with 39 stripes because he would not stop preaching Christ? Because he got some self-help? No. Because the Spirit of God, power was given to him in the presence of of the filling of the Spirit of God to live his life. And there's more. There's a fire in there. Now, I don't know if you're a kid and like to play with fire. When we were kids in Barrick Primary School, we used to get magnifying glasses and set leaves on fire with them at lunchtime. Bushfires and everything notwithstanding, we did get in trouble for it a few times. Fire has a tremendous ability both to destroy, but fire does something else too. I love watching these guys on the YouTube and they take lumps of steel and they forge it and they put it in the forge and they take it out and they pound on that red hot steel. And as they pound away in the pounding, you can see what's sort of like like scale forming on the surface of that molten metal. And what they're doing is they're putting in the forge, they're bringing it out, they're beating it with those hammers as hard as they can, is they're driving the impurities out to the surface as the metal heats up and all the slag, they call it, comes off. And they keep knocking it. As they do, the the slag flies off. And finally, when they're done, they have this one piece of pure iron or whatever it is they're working on. And one guy takes the iron when it cooled, it up to a grinder, and he put it on the grinder. And as he put it on the grinder, the perfect display of sparks came off the grinder to show that he had the one piece of purified metal. What's the point, you're asking? The power of the Spirit of God that comes as we are filled with the Holy Spirit is the power to purify our lives. God called us to be a people holy to the Lord. And it's the work of the Spirit of God in us to make us holy. 
to take that word that he is using and apply it to our hearts to take us and change us. And sometimes he uses a hammer and an anvil and he pounds away with that heat and he drives the impurities out that we might be a vessel pure and clean and fit for the master's use. God keeps his promises, brothers and sisters. How do you know you're going to make it through this life? Because God keeps his promises. How do I know for sure that my life will be acceptable to God? Because God keeps his promises. How am I going to live in a world that hates Christianity and wants nothing to do with it? What's going to get me through it? The Spirit of God in us, driving us and pushing us along. The power to live this life isn't in self-help and determination and gritting our teeth and sucking up and getting through it. It's in the power of the Spirit of God on us. And even more, there's more. I could keep going for hours, but I know that that thing's probably freezing you out, so I probably won't. (laughs) Listen, trust the Lord. Lean fully on Him. Those promises you're struggling to deal with, Commit him to his care. He knows what he's doing, brothers and sisters. He will never, ever let you out of his grasp. He's got you. He saved you. He's delivered you. He will see you through. One day we will see Jesus face to face. And all these things will be wrapped up. What an amazing God we have. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. We're going to pray and then I'm going to ask Rod we can play the benediction. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Let's stand together. We'll pray. Loving Father, we come before you again and we give you thanks, O God. Father, you made promises all through the Old Testament. And Father, they all pointed as clear as a bell to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we think about that action as the Jews in the Old Testament, the Israelites, took that lamb and they cut its throat and they gathered the blood in a bowl. And they took the blood and with a brush they painted it on the doorpost and the lintel. And Father, no doubt you looked down and you saw that and you remembered. You were reminded of a day to come when Christ's blood would cover the vertical post and the cross beam of a cross. Father, you took them out into the wilderness and you formed a covenant and you made a nation. And Father, in in sinful rebellion, they refused to be submitting to you, in submission to you. And Father, you ordained and you planned that a great bronze altar would be built and it would stand barring the way that anyone coming close to the tabernacle would know that without death and fire and blood, there could be no access. And Father, all of those things, the tabernacle, its laver, its, its altar of incense, the table of showbread, the menorah, all of it cries out and shouts, there is a Savior coming. 
And Father, we give you thanks. We just stand here this morning in awe. We thank you, O God, for a Savior who was willing to go to a cross. He was willing that his soul would be crushed. He was willing to be nailed to a cross, but not just nailed, to be crushed under the weight of your wrath for us. Oh God, it it takes our breath away. Father, to know that you have made a new covenant and you have brought us into it. And Father, we stand here this morning forgiven. We stand here this morning, Father, washed clean in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We stand here this morning, Father, knowing that we know you, not just from a distance, but intimate and close. Father, we thank you. We praise you, O God, for the work that you have done, for the promises that you have kept. Father, we look forward with great anticipation, with great joy, O God, knowing that the work isn't done, that the Spirit of God is still working in our lives to move us and shape us. Father, the heat, the fire of the Spirit is working to purify us, to make us vessels useful for the Master. And Father, we realize in a moment that you use us weak and failing, cracked and broken. But Father, we know that your grace is sufficient for us. Father, we look forward also with great anticipation to the day when the work in us will be done. We will hear that great trumpet shout that says the King draws near. And Father, we rejoice to know that He is coming again. He will gather us, separate the sheep from the goats. And Father, that awful phrase, depart from me, I never knew you. Father God, we thank you. Thank you, O God, for such grace, for such love. Father, we thank you for promises that have been so beautifully kept. Father, we cry out to you also for those here this morning who are grieving and struggling. Father, there's pain, there's hurt, there's great sorrow for many. And Father, we cry out to you that you would help them to lean back on you, to trust in you. Father, even though they can't, they can't see the end of their situation, to trust you that you know exactly what you're doing. You who kept such promises will carry them through. Father, we ask you again that you would do a great work in this church. Father, we ask you that you would refresh our love for Christ. That the revival that began at Pentecost would begin to flow strong again. Father, that we as a church would have our love deepened and refreshed and renewed. There would be a renewed desire to put off sin, a renewed desire to live godly and live holy lives before you. But Father, that the revival wouldn't just start and stop inside this church, but it would spread to the neighborhood, to Noble Park and Keysboro and Dingley 
and Danny Nong, and Father across the nation. Father God, we realize that it is nothing to you to accomplish such a thing. And so we ask in faith, O God, that you would see it done. Father, we give you thanks again now for a time of worship. Father, we thank you again for a sweet memory of the Lord Jesus. We give you thanks, O God, and we pray these things in his own dear precious name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.